Hello, and welcome to The Promise of Discovery, a podcast where members and investigators at the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center talk about their research in intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, so my name is Cheryl Ann Bermudez, and I'm a graduate student in the Department of Pharmacology in the labs of Drs. Colleen Neiswinder and Jeff Kahn. And so today I'm here with one of my mentors, Dr. Colleen Neiswinder, who is the Director of Molecular Pharmacology in the Warren Center for Neuroscience Drug Discovery and a professor in the Department of Pharmacology. Say hello, Colleen. Hi, everybody. And so today we are here to talk about Colleen's research in neurodevelopmental disorders, um, such as Rett syndrome, and the development of small molecules for, as therapeutics for these disorders. And so I wanted to start with um, asking Colleen about her current roles. Uh, one is more drug discovery focused, while the other is more of an academic research um, field. So Colleen, how long have you been on each role? So um, a little about me, I got my PhD at Vanderbilt in the Department of Pharmacology. And then I moved to the University of Washington for six years where I did a postdoctoral fellowship. And then my husband, who's an MD PhD, and I came back to Vanderbilt in 2004. And at that point, the Center for Neuroscience Drug Discovery was just sort of in its infancy. Um, and so I had some initial roles as part of the center including looking for new small molecules that we could work on in the center, um, but also interfacing in some of the more basic science projects. And about nine years ago, I started a group within the center that's heavily focused on thinking about new treatments for neurodevelopmental disorders. And one of the disorders that we've worked on most recently um, is a disorder called Rett syndrome, but we're also working on other types of neurodevelopmental disorders like Pitt-Hopkins syndrome, MECD2 duplication syndrome, and then we're always taking sort of an opportunistic approach as to how we can merge our drug discovery efforts with different neurological and psychiatric disorders. Nice. So how did you get interested in your work? You mentioned that, you know, it's the, the, the center has been in its infancy when you came. So how did you transition from more of like a drug discovery side of the center to the basic science side? Right. So, I mean, I think I would describe the work that goes on in the more academic, I'm using air quotes, part of the lab is always with an eye towards translation into the clinic. So how can we move our basic science um, into new types of therapeutics for the individuals that we serve in the neurodevelopmental disorders community? So when I first got here, as I mentioned, I was involved in some initial work to develop, to identify some compounds that we could work on. And at that point, I was mainly focused on disorders like schizophrenia um, and Parkinson's disease. And about in about 2012, I had gone to a grant review um, about Parkinson's and I had been thinking about neurodevelopmental disorders all this time, but I had a lot of other things to do. Um, However, I went to this grant review and a lot of people have heard me tell this story, but I was sharing a cab back to the airport with another scientist. And she said, you know, I, I'm, I'm really passionate about Parkinson's disease. And she said, you know, but if I could do my career over again, I would work on something that affects children. 
And that was really the impetus for me to say, you know what, I really want to develop this focus in neurodevelopmental disorders, particularly in children and sort of bring the drug discovery group maybe toward that, um, that cohort, that group of patients. And so we, I wrote an initial grant at that time, which we were awarded, and that sort of started the development of the group in neurodevelopmental disorders. But as I said, you know, I have graduate students and postdoctoral fellows that are training with me. And we try to, one of the things I think that's so unique about the center is that it's very synergistic between the basic science and the drug discovery because the drug discovery is always kind of going on in the background and we're developing compounds and we're looking at them in animal models. And eventually our goal, and we've done this now with two programs, is to take things into the clinic. However, we have a lot of compounds that we work on in the center that are never gonna be a drug. So something's wrong with them. The body doesn't metabolize them properly. They don't get into the brain, um, but those can be really good tool molecules for a student or another trainee to take and then ask some really interesting biological questions. And then the answers from those studies then help the drug discovery group determine what types of compounds that we wanna look for, what the profile needs to be. And so I do think that it's a very um, interesting balance between the academic and the drug discovery. And it's something that I think you can only really do in an academic environment because a lot of times in a pharmaceutical company, for example, um, a lot of decisions are made that are business decisions, right? But here, I mean, the things that we work on, those are our scientific loves, and we're not going to stop working on them just because of a business decision. Yeah. Um, we're going to, you know, we have a long lasting relationship with those targets and those questions and those techniques. So I think that that really allows us to stick in the game longer and really motivates us to try to push something all the way through development to eventually uh, into people. Great, so is, so is the field of Rett syndrome or your focus on Rett syndrome initially stemmed from using these tool molecules to understand uh, basic biology of a disorder? Right, so I originally got into Rett syndrome because I just had an idea that one of the targets we were already working on could be really important for RET because of where it was expressed in the brain and also how it might be regulated by the gene that's the protein that comes from the gene that's mutated in RET syndrome, which is a gene that's called MECP2 or methyl CPG binding protein two. And that gene binds to areas in DNA that have been given marks, epigenetic marks by a series of enzymes. And we knew that in the promoter of the gene I was really interested in, which is the gene for a glutamate receptor, that there was methylation that, that controlled the expression of that receptor. And so I thought, well, maybe this receptor is expressed in certain parts of the brain that we think are important for Rett syndrome, and maybe it's regulated by the gene that's mutated in Rett. And so that's kind of how we got into that field. I will say that when we got our first grant, that that provided us with um, an entry into the NIH Neurobiobank program. And so we were able to very early on obtain samples from patients at autopsy um, for both people who were controls and then people who, were, who had Rett syndrome. And we were able to validate in people 
that the expression of our glutamate receptor was greatly decreased. And so that told us that the type of therapeutic strategy we might want to go for was something that increases the activity of that receptor or potentiates it. And so we were able to, through our work in the center, develop small molecules to then ask the question in a mouse model of Rett syndrome, could we rescue some of the abnormal findings that those mice have? And the answer was yes. And so this has now formed the basis of the grant that we recently received um, and also of our potential future drug discovery campaign around this target. Right. So let's talk more about this grant that you recently funded. How, how is it different from what you've initially shown with this glutamate receptor and its you know, role in Rett syndrome? Right, so I mentioned the, the brain bank and how important a resource that was for us. And so after we did our initial studies with the original samples, we had chosen those samples based on what mutation the people had. And we knew that all of the individuals in our first sets of studies had what we call a truncation mutation. So they didn't actually make the MECP2 protein mm -hmm. or it wasn't stable. And so those patients represent one subgroup of Rett syndrome, but lots of patients who have Rett actually have what's called a point mutation. So they just have one amino acid in the protein that's different, but somehow that affects the, pro the, the function of that protein. And so we were able to get samples from the brain bank of patients who had all different kinds of mutations all over the MECP2 gene. And we were able to show both for this glutamate receptor, but also for other targets, that depending on what mutation a person had, that dictated how their levels of this glutamate receptor were changed. So there were some people that we didn't see a change in this glutamate receptor. And there were other people with a different mutation where we saw, again, this very, very dramatic reduction in expression of our target, this glutamate receptor. And so that brings up a question of if we eventually get to the point of doing a clinical trial and we enroll patients in our trial and they have different types of mutations, would they all respond to our compound that we're developing? Or would some of them not respond because they don't have a decrease in levels of our glutamate receptor? Or more importantly, could this treatment maybe not be safe in those individuals? And so the part of the grant, the first part of the grant is the drug discovery. We need to make compounds that we could eventually take into the clinic. The second part of the grant is to look in mouse models of the mutations that are reflective of what we see in the clinic and ask the question, is our compound still safe and effective? And then the last aim of the grant um, is interesting because especially when you do a clinical trial in neuroscience or psychiatry or something that where the compound, the drug has to get into the brain. Um, if you don't have a way to know that your drug is in the brain, how do you know that you did an experiment? How do you know that you really tested whether that drug was gonna work or not? And so we're looking at different approaches of what we call biomarkers. So these are things that we can use to say, oh, when we give our drug, yes, we have this signature in the brain. And you can use that to set what your dose is going to be in your initial clinical trials. 
And so we're working actually with Jeff Newell's lab in the Kennedy Center to look in mouse models of Rett syndrome and to look at signatures of our compounds in um, things like EEG, which is an interesting biomarker because it's non-invasive, right? We could do it in people where we could put an EEG cap on them and we could measure their um, signatures, electrical signatures. And so that's a big part of this project is so when we get to the point of having a compound to take into clinical development, we have a biomarker there to know that we really tested our hypothesis, which is the ultimate goal of science, right? Is to develop a good hypothesis that's testable. And once you test it, you know, yes or no, it worked or it didn't work. Hmm. So this is really a very translational research. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I think that that's something that really drives me. And it's something even before I joined the center that I, I didn't even really know that I, that I wanted that to drive me. But as I've been here and seen this happen, you know, having two programs now that have made it all the way into clinical testing, I think that's what I'm really passionate about is being able to couple the drug discovery with really good basic science in order to have a hypothesis that's worth testing in people. Mm-hmm. So you also mentioned, I mean, we're all we're focused on Rett syndrome here, but obviously like your group is neurodevelopmental disorders. So what other disorders um, does your lab focus on? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, So most patients who have Rett syndrome have mutations in the MECP2 gene, but there are some patients who don't Mm -hmm. and they have a mutation. Usually there's a couple other genes that might be interesting candidates. So, but, but the disorders have a lot of overlap with Rett syndrome. And so one of those is a disorder I mentioned called Pitt-Hopkins syndrome. And so there was a paper that came out several years ago that mapped all of the binding sites of the protein that's mutated in Pitt-Hopkins syndrome, which is different than Rett, and found that our glutamate receptor was also regulated by the protein that's mutated in Pitt-Hopkins. And so that suggested that maybe if we went into a Pitt-Hopkins model, that we would see efficacy of our compound. And so we obtained a mouse model of Pitt-Hopkins, and we first looked in the brain at the expression of our glutamate receptor, and it was, again, greatly reduced. And so then we were able to use our compound to potentiate the activity of our receptor in that context. And those mice have several, like Rett syndrome mice, they have several abnormal symptoms and we were able to rescue those again with our compound. Another um, area that we're working on that is pretty interesting that I I didn't think I would get into, but it has to do with the fact that at Vanderbilt, if you come to Vanderbilt for a doctor's appointment or you're admitted to the hospital, you become part of Vanderbilt's database that is called BioVU or BioView. And so your medical record becomes part of BioView. And if you give blood, um, you will also, unless you opt out, you can opt out and decide not to do this. You would also have a DNA sample. And all of these samples are de-identified. So no one knows who is who, but it provides a really valuable resource for researchers to be able to look at clinical data. And so I was approached by a group through the Vanderbilt Institute of Translational Research. And they said, we wanna go into BioView and we want to look for, this is called 
phenotypes. So phenome-wide association study. And a phenotype is just a symptom. So when you go to the doctor and your doctor sees you for diabetes, let's say, then you will get a code in your chart that you have diabetes. So what they want to do is to use the DNA samples that are in BioView and then to match those to the symptoms that are in BioView <clears throat> to see if we can identify either new diseases or new drugs, new clinical information directly from people that can help us in drug discovery efforts, either new efforts or in using existing drugs. And so I asked them to go ahead and look at our glutamate receptor gene, and they did. And they came back with a really interesting disorder that I had never thought about. And it's called neurofibromatosis type one. And we know what the gene is that's mutated in neurofibromatosis type one, NF1. Um, but there is a subset of patients, sorry, the main phenotypes, symptoms that you see in NF1 are things like um, brown spots on the skin or something called neurofibromas, which are tumors that grow along nerves. And they're usually benign, but some of them can become malignant. But in talking to a clinician, Paul Moots here at Vanderbilt, um, he said, you know, it's interesting because there's a subset of patients who have NF1 who have different types of learning disabilities. And we thought that was really interesting because we had already been able to, in Rett syndrome models and Pitt-Hopkins models, link this receptor to learning and memory. Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And so maybe our receptor is some type of, what Dr. Moots told me said it's interesting because you don't see a correlation between the learning disabilities and how many tumors that people have, for example. He said, so it's something that seems like maybe it's modifying what's happening. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe our gene is a modifier of the NF1 symptoms that you see. And so maybe we could use the BioView data to link our gene to certain symptoms that you see in subsets of NF1 patients. So that's a project that we're just kind of starting on now, but it's sort of a, a different type of neurodevelopmental disorder than things that are related to MECP2 and Rett syndrome. Mm -hmm. So this project or this grant that you have is, you know, it's focused on Rett syndrome, but really the small molecules that you are developing could be used for several neurodevelopmental disorders. Absolutely. And um, one thing that I didn't mention in the NF1 um, story that I just spoke about is that we've also been able to use our compound that we used in Rett syndrome and rescue some of the learning and memory deficits we see in NF1, in mice that are modeling NF1. So yeah, the goal is to um, be able to, I think one thing that is important to do in drug discovery and also in, in science is that we have to continue validating our target. So the more different types of indications that we have, I think it also helps you think about things, mechanisms and ways that things are overlapping between different diseases and whether there might be common threads there that you could exploit for therapeutics development. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, I think that kind of covers the research, what your research is and the impact that it has on people that have these disorders. Um, and so I guess this is the time for you to ask me a question. <laughs> sure. I get to ask Cheryl a question. So <laughs> for those uh, on this podcast who don't know, Cheryl is actually a graduate student 
who is in the Department of Pharmacology who works in my lab, but she does not work on the project that the new grant um, is about. And so I thought it would be good for Cheryl to tell you a little bit about her project and how it sort of interfaces with some of the things that we're doing in the center. Yes, so really when I started this lab, when I started in this lab, um, I did work on those samples that we had from the Neurobiobank and we were able to, as Colleen mentioned earlier, to figure out what mutations are in MECP2 that these patients had. Um, and she mentioned that, you know, it's not just this glutamate receptor that Colleen has been talking about that was impacted, but there's also a bunch of other receptors that were impacted as well. And so I focus on this other glutamate receptor um, and we've been focusing on whether or not, you know, small molecules that we develop in the center also has, that targets this receptor also has efficacy in mouse models of Rett syndrome. And another related neurodevelopment disorder known as MECP2 duplication syndrome, which is caused by a overexpression of the MECP2 protein. Um, but another thing that has been kind of taken off in my thesis project is this idea that, you know, can we target MECP2 directly? And there's a lot of research in the field that has really been focusing on that. Um, in fact, there is a um, compound or viral vector that targets MECP2 um, that is poised to go into clinic. Um, but the idea is to understand, you know, is there going to be this need for a personalized approach? Meaning that mm -hmm. each patient um, that have Rett syndrome and have different mutations in MECP2 require a different um, treatment strategy. So part of the project is using these mouse models of Rett syndrome um, and then, you know, overexpressing MECP2, which is the goal of um, MECP2-based therapy and determine whether or not there's a, you know, a safety issue, whether, you know, these adding MECP2 back, will it have a um, adverse side effect? Will it cause adverse side effects that you don't want? Um, so it really kind of stems from what Colleen's overall goal is, is to really understand the neurodevelopmental disorders, but also try to determine, you know, are these neurodevelopmental disorders, do they need a personalized approach? Um, and so that kind of has been my thesis project. And it's also really, I think, integral to what Colleen is trying to ask in the lab. Thanks, Cheryl. Great. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to share about this, um, your research, Colleen, or anything else that you'd like to tell the people in the lab? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I would like to say is that <clears throat> it's always impressed me how the families of individuals with the disorders that we work on are so passionate and so forthcoming about talking to scientists about what they see and what they need. Um, and so I would encourage if there are listeners here who would like to come and visit our center and talk to us, I always find it really inspiring to hear from, from families that 
are impacted by the disorders that we work on. And so we do spend a lot of time with outreach and going to meetings that are family meetings and talking to, to families. And so I would encourage people if they'd like to learn more about what we're doing to, um, I'm sure the Kennedy Center can help you figure out how to contact me, but um, we'd love to talk to you. If there are other folks here who are on more of a scientific um, bent, we are always looking for new trainees. So please contact me and we can talk about opportunities. All right. Um, so I have one more question before um, we close this podcast is, so, you know, you mentioned a lot of the, the efficacy that you've seen in mouse models of Rett syndrome. Um, but what do you um, foresee as the impact of the compounds that you're developing in the lab um, and it's basically its impact in a person with Rett syndrome and how that would influence their life. Right. Um, you know, right now in the Rett syndrome community, as you mentioned, there is a big push for fixing MECP2, right? That is the causative gene. We know that. And so what I'm hopeful for is also something that you mentioned is the ability of a small molecule like this to be able to impact symptoms in Rett syndrome individuals, but also in other, in other disorders. In particular, I think that the compounds for the project that I talked about that we're developing may have an impact um, in seizures, um, which a lot of Rett syndrome patients suffer from. And that could kind of take us into other types of seizure disorders as well. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, things like um, a lot of patients with Rett have breathing abnormalities, including apneas. And we've seen that our compound can reverse some of those effects. I think there's also potential for things like attention and communication, which you know now it's so encouraging to see so many individuals with Rett using Toby's and eye gaze technology. And I'm really interested in thinking about, you know, the ability of this receptor to even enhance the ability of, of people with RET, for example, to communicate. So does that answer the question? Yeah, no, that was really great. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Colleen, for sitting down with me today. Um, I think I speak for everyone uh, to say that we're very excited to see where the research takes us. Thanks. We're excited too. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Promise of Discovery. Be sure to visit the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center website at vkc.vumc.org to learn more about today's episode. And tune in next time for more on the innovative research and intellectual and developmental disabilities from the Vanderbilt Kennedy Center.